A warning to listeners. This episode contains explicit language. I'm Amy Britton, and this is Canary, an investigative podcast from The Washington Post. Chapter 7. I'll Find My Joy In the summer of 1976, a 16-year-old girl from Alabama set out on a family vacation. She and her family packed up the car in Birmingham, and they traveled more than six hours, all the way to a remote part of southwest Virginia until they made it to a small town called Marion. Then they drove through wooded hills up a winding, rough road to reach a countryside estate. They gathered there with close friends. During the days, they swam in a local lake. And at night, they all sat around together, just telling stories and reminiscing. But what happened on that property one night would have rippling effects that no one could have known at the time. The road to Marion altered the course of Carol Griffin's life. And now, it was time to go back. There's part of me that just wants to say, we'll just see what happens. God damn it, I don't know why I'm so compelled to go back to this space. But on the way over here, we talked about it, and it was like, that's that's why we're coming to this space, you know? And we were listening to, do you know Lucinda Williams? She um, She's this cool-ass woman from, uh, I, I guess she's from Louisiana, but she is like a wild singer. And she's uh, saying, um, she sings this song, she says, I don't want you anymore because you took my joy. I don't want you anymore. This song is called Joy. It's actually about going back to Slidell, a city in Louisiana. She says, I want to go to Slidell. But we were like, I want to go to Marion and look for my joy. Maybe in Marion I'll find my joy. Because I'm thinking there's been such a heavy division. There's a part of me that got just taken and pushed my face into the mud at that point. And then I carried that by myself all that whole time. So anyway, that's what we were thinking. This trip to Marion happened earlier in the reporting process, months before I went to Truman Morrison for his response before he admitted to sexually touching Carol when she was 16, but denied a key part of her account. During this trip, I was still deep in the process of reporting, and I felt like I needed to go to the Morrison property for corroboration, to see that this place actually existed. But what I took away from Marion was much bigger than that. It showed me that this journey was not a linear one. It's not like Carol was ever going to wake up one day and this experience, this trauma, would just be gone. But Marion was a chance for her to reclaim her own story, to kind of rewrite the lyrics, to confront her past in a real, tangible way. All right. 
said the barn is on the this side. Is that what I said? If you're facing on the left, or did I think it was on the left? I was in the car with Carol and her partner Shay, and we were driving up this long driveway that led to the property. The Morrison family sold this place years ago, but we asked the new owner's permission to walk around the property, and they said yes. I mean, I have a weird feeling, like I just don't exactly know exactly what it is, but my hands are doing <laughs> this weird thing. Oh no, there it is. There it that's is. where the that's that's where the thing was. That's the barn unit. That's where the deck was. Up there on that little ridge. Mm-hmm. On that little Around ridge, but they've taken it down. It was a beautiful swath of land. With wooded hills, a babbling stream, and goats in a pen. I can't tell if the feeling that I have is just numb or free. Mm-hmm. That wasn't here. Right. This place was as Carol had described it to me. The deck wasn't like somewhere. The house was still there. The road was still rough. But the deck was no longer there. The deck where Carol said Truman Morrison had assaulted her. The property owner told us he tore it down soon after buying the place. We were about to walk up the hill to visit the spot where the deck used to be. I don't want to run away from it anymore. And so here I am, and we're standing on rocks Mm -hmm. and dirt, and there are goats. Mm -hmm. Oh. I'm embarrassed. Right this minute, I'm just, like, scared that everything that I'm saying is, like... Why are you embarrassed? Just shut up, Carol. I don't know. You know? And to go through this process with you, I feel like in a moment where I let myself actually feel how I feel, then I feel self-indulgent, and I feel like melodramatic, and I feel like just quit making such a big deal out of this, you know. But it is a big deal to me. I mean, and I'm somehow, what am I doing telling you guys and you're standing here listening to me and I've had this inside of me for so long and I don't feel like anybody took it seriously. confusing and Amy I swear you know like just walking up that hill that's my that's who I am now but when I talk about this stuff I just it's like okay she's visiting me Carol was talking about herself but as a teenager and the idea that her younger self was somehow present in this moment. This little person that I've just kind of pushed into the shadows, you know, as far as like, listening to her. Um, 
so. Maybe we should give you a little bit of time. Cool. Yeah. I walked down to the stream and I gave Carol some space. She stood on the hilltop, closing her eyes and holding an umbrella to shield herself from the sun. Before this trip, Carol told me that for decades she had blamed herself and battled shame, fear, and depression, all stemming from what happened here. I can't tell you just how often I've heard this. Just how common these feelings are for people who have shared accounts of sexual assault and harassment. But now, I was witnessing a rare shift in real time. It was subtle, not seismic, but it was a moment of unburdening. The blame was lifting off the shoulders of that 16-year-old girl. In its place, I saw a wave of peace come over Carol as she walked down the hill. It had taken 400 miles and over 40 years to get back here to reach this place. The next morning, before we left Marion, I sat down with Carol. I wanted to know what she had been thinking when she was alone on top of the hill. I wanted to know if she had found what she had been looking for, her joy. I still feel a little afraid when I think about it, but that's better than what I've been feeling, you know? Like, I didn't even have enough presence to feel how afraid I felt at the time. And I know that's true. That brings up a little bit of strong feeling. But I decided this is enough. As investigative reporters, we are trained to keep our distance, to not let our emotions get in the way, to be disciplined, to be guided by the facts and by principles of fairness, to always be in search of the truth, wherever that leads us. And sometimes you end up in the unlikeliest of places. A bakery in Birmingham, Alabama, a church in East Lansing, Michigan, the wooded hills of Marion, Virginia, And now I was here, standing outside of an office building in D.C., waiting for Carol. She had driven hours to be here. I met her and walked with her inside to a conference room. Hey! How are you? Lauren Clark was waiting for us. Uh, Are you Lauren? I'm so glad you're a hug. The two of them met in the middle of the room and they embraced. It's so good to meet you. You too. I'm telling you, it's <laughs> good to meet you. Yeah. Wow. Sorry. <laughs> I know you remind me of me. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yeah. I'm this one. Can yeah. I get you guys some water? Yeah. You look beautiful. You look beautiful. I mean, I'm so freaking blown away. I don't even know what to say. Sorry. (laughs) Yeah. I'm just in awe of you. Um. They moved over to the sofa and sat down to talk. 
Can I ask you a question? Sure. Um, I'm just, I wonder how, what it was like for you to find out about the story and to read it initially. I couldn't believe it. I can't believe this either. (laughs) (laughs) But I couldn't believe just that, how bizarre, just, because I had put it away, you know, and I thought that, God Almighty, I've been in therapy for as long as I can remember. And I think I thought I had done the best I could with it. But did I deal with it? Not explicitly, you know, not out in the open. I didn't get that, you know. So when I read the story, I'd struggled with it. It was my problem. And when I read the story, I saw it was your problem too, you know. And all of a sudden, the world sort of cracked open a little bit. It wasn't my little private hell, you know. It was really knowing that there was another person out there who was impacted, potentially. It made, I felt so mad that he got such a light sentence. And it it was inescapable to me that it had to be for some reason because of Truman's past, you know. And I didn't want that to go unacknowledged to you because I was like, yeah, it has to feel so dismissive and discounting of that incredibly traumatic experience we went through for them to have such an insufficient response. So, so I wanted you to know the rest of the story, you know. What was that like when you found out about Truman? I think it was a different kind of anger. Um, And like a very deep sadness and a familiar feeling of the complexity of these issues that we face, you know, um, and how pervasive uh, this kind of violence is and why, like how it's like woven into the fabric of our society and Yeah. It breaks my heart. <laughs> because I know that I'm not the only person that has had a case in front of him, and I know that that's his job every day, and it's colored by. his past experiences and the things that, you know, he has done and 
it was it was really difficult to hear. Um, So what do you hope for now? I mean, as far as like, are you at the end of your experience about this? Um, I feel so much better than I used to feel. Um, I have been able to restore my sense of like safety and my sense of self in the world. Um, I noticed that I stopped walking the same way. I became like very rigid. Mm-hmm. And like, I love dresses and I love high heels and I, I love flowy skirts. And like, I just one day realized that like when I walked, there was like no swing in my step. And mm-hmm. I just, yeah. There were, I mean, that's just one small example of like how contracted I became. Um, and the, just how far away from myself I was. Mm-hmm. And I remember one day last summer, I was walking to work and wearing heels and a dress and just sashaying down the street. <laughs> and I was like, oh my God. <laughs> it made me so happy. And that, since then, it's been this process of like, you know, coming home to myself and getting myself back and yeah I was sitting on the floor crouched down and clutching a microphone practically holding my breath Lauren and Carol had spent an hour talking with each other and as the time passed they inched closer and closer together now they were both sitting cross-legged face to face and holding hands a new bond was forming between them and it wasn't just about what was done to them the trauma that they said they shared. It was about what they did in response. It was Lauren's decision to pass out those flyers and to issue that public warning that created a new path forward for Carol. And Carol took that path, despite a million reasons not to. They'd reckoned with the causes of their suffering. They'd confronted their own feelings and their own disappointments. Together, they made a crucial discovery that closure and justice are not always the same. Now both women said they felt a certain lightness, a freedom that seemed unattainable when this reporting began three years ago. They found their voices, and eventually, they found each other. When I walked in here, I'm like, I just, I picture myself just holding your hand and just, I don't know what to say to you except just thank you. And we're in this together, sort of, like, something like that, you know? And (laughs) that's what I picture. (laughs) Because what the hell do we do here? You know, and you did that, and then I did this. And honestly, I don't give a shit what happens to Truman because what has happened to me And I feel like for us, me and you to sit here and talk about it is like trying to capture worlds and universes and drawing them down to a conversation. (laughs) Every bit of it is just a little tiny piece of it, you know? But I know that I'm different right now. I'm a different person. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Of course. 
I'm a different person. For months, the scene you just heard was the final scene of Canary. I thought it was the perfect way to end this series, to leave you with a moment of optimism and a feeling of closure. Then, just before the launch of this podcast, oh my God, I got some news. It's so crazy. I called my mom to tell her. For over a year, Carol and her parents had been searching for those two missing apology letters from Truman Morrison. And now, Janet had just found one. It was a photocopy of the letter that Truman sent to them in 1995, soon after the airport confrontation that ended their friendship. Janet was going through a filing cabinet when she found a folder so she opened it with old letters from Truman. And there was Truman's letter. Yeah, can you, can you read the letter to me? Yes. But it's a typewritten letter. And it's signed with Truman's signature. But, okay, okay, so it says, Dear, Dear Jean, Jean and Janet, Janet I, should I should have, have written, written sooner. sooner. I haven't known exactly how to. I keep thinking that I will awaken from this as in a bad dream. As I tried to express in a note to Carol, I write not to explain or justify my past conduct. I write only to somehow express the deep, aching sadness and shame that I feel the pain I have caused, Carol, you, and your family. I'm trying to find ways to face the realization that I am inescapably the kind of person who could have acted so thoughtlessly. There's not an hour in any day that passes when I do not experience an intense sense of panic at the reality that I have hurt Carol, the people in the family I care about more than any other. Jean, by any measure I use, reflecting on what friendship really is, you have been my best friend for many years now. I admire and respect you more than anyone I know. The fact that I have doubtless caused the end of our friendship causes me to feel a sense of despair and loneliness that is overwhelming. No matter how inexplicable my past actions may be to you, please trust, if you possibly can, that I love you. I am not ready to write this letter and I have not done a good job at expressing myself. I just could not not write. I simply do not know how to convey how sorry I am for the pain and suffering I have caused. You are constantly in my thoughts. I love you both very, very much. Love, Truman. Wow. <laughs> what are your thoughts? It took me right back to my state of mind, reading all of those letters back and forth to my state of mind at the time, and it made me really see why it was so confusing. It was such a love fest, you know, between my parents and and so much, you know, love expressed for me. And just, it's just, I just remember just the whole thing. It's no wonder I did not find the courage to talk to anybody about it. Just incredibly pervasive, like, just this kind of, that kind of thing. The way he talked in that letter, it just, that's the way it was. There was a lot of heartfelt, you know, good people 
As I mentioned earlier, there is a desire to leave you with a sense of finality, an ending, a chance to move on. It feels better that way because you don't have to reckon with the alternative, which is the reality that millions of people are living with, that the wounds and scars from trauma will never fully go away. There are days with steps forward and other days with steps back. When Carol opened up that file folder, it took her back. So, this isn't an ending. Not for Carol. But it's real, and it's an accurate depiction of what it takes to speak out about something like this, and a sense of what it takes to live with that decision day in and day out. For me, though, it feels like the right way to leave this story. Because it's faithful to the process. It's transparent. And it's as close to the heart of the truth as I can take you. If you made it this far, I want to sincerely thank you for listening. I'm Amy Britton, the reporter and host of Canary, The Washington Post Investigates. Canary was produced by Rena Flores and Bishop Sand. Sound designed by Bishop Sand. Theme music by Ted Muldoon. Editing and audio direction by Madalika Sika. Additional editing by Jeff Lean, David Fallis, Jess Stahl, and Laura Maholsky. Data reporting by Stephen Rich. Research by Julie Tate and Madeline Davison, who was a summer intern for the investigative reporting workshop at American University. Mara Jekis co-authored the initial story on Lauren Clark's campaign for justice. Lena Mohammed co-produced an audio version of that story. Project editing by Courtney Kahn. Legal review by Jay Kennedy and Jim McLaughlin. The song you heard at the end of each episode is called Canary, and it's sung by Joy Williams. Joy wrote it with Caitlin Smith and Angelo Petraglia. Page design and development by Claire Ramirez. Art direction and logo design by Courtney Kahn. Logo illustration by Ariel Sun. Animation by Colin Pope. Photos by Jared Ragland and Selwan Georges. Photo editing by Nick Kirkpatrick. Design editing by Greg Manifold, Matthew Callahan, and Lucio Villa. I also want to give a special thanks to my generous and kind colleagues at The Washington Post who offered their support and feedback for this project. They are Jen Abelson, Jerry Brewer, Lillian Cunningham, Adam Kushner, Michael Cranish, Anu Swami, Nima Rishania Patel, Maggie Penman, Martine Powers, and Julie Vikovskaya. If you want to see more from this story, go to WashingtonPost.com slash Canary. As a final word, this type of reporting by The Washington Post is made possible by you, our listeners and readers. The best way to support this podcast and other investigative journalism is to subscribe. Go to WashingtonPost.com slash CanaryOffer for a deal on a subscription. Thank you again for listening.
It's a long, long 